This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. If there is ever someone whose work and life cannot be squeezed into a neat category, it's my guest this week on The Literary Life. Critic, editor, anthologist, essayist, poet, public intellectual, John Freeman is all of these. Dave Egger says of John, John Freeman is one of the preeminent book people of our time. I've known John for many years now, and all I would add to what Dave says is that John is also one of the most decent people I know. His work is characterized by a concern for, in his own words, imagining a better public space. John, welcome to The Literary Life. Hey, it's nice to be here, sweating with you. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, that leads me to this, that you're also one of the most well-traveled people that I know. You're always off somewhere, and uh, that includes now. So in this time of COVID, you're even able to be traveling. Where are you now, and how are things going? Um, I've been in London for about six weeks to um, look after or help look after my partner's mother, um, who was in shielding for four months here. So that means that she could only speak to people through a window. Um, and that's, that's pretty rough. Uh, they had a really severe lockdown here. And the result of it was um, their caseload is very low. So upon arriving here, my first shock was just no masks at all anywhere. Um, and then I did some reading up on what was going on in London and they have, a, you know, a few thousand cases a week. Um, I think actually in all of the UK, uh, and there's a few hundred a week in, in, in London. So the result of that is that it's, it, it seems a lot more like quote unquote normal life here. The bookstores are open. Um, you, you know, you have ways to get in and keep your hands clean and socially distanced, but it's, um, it's very strange. And the other big thing I noticed upon arriving is you don't see Trump's face and you don't hear his voice perpetually, you know, which is, which is one of the really nice things about being no, here. I was wondering, you know, we're doing this by, um, by Zoom, even though you're only going to hear the audio part of it. And I was wondering why you look so relaxed, John. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be that. It's about, you know, 60, almost 60 days of Trump-free <laughs> life, which if, if this is what the afterlife feels like after the election, let me tell you, it is going to be beautiful. You know, since he's losing or he perceives that he's yeah. losing or that we hope he's losing, he's just doubling and tripling down on every uh, horrific, hateful thing that he's ever said or done. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just... It's just horrible. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly surreal instinct to have that um, instead of trying to bring people together in a time of crisis, to sort of drive them apart from each other. And th his instincts are, they're anarchic, you know, and um, 
which is a strange thing because he's made such a thing out of out of Antifa. You know, he's trying to create them into an enemy. Um, uh, but it, he his his instincts are are anti-governmental. They're I mean, it's it's surreal. Well, you know, I I, I read the only one of these books that I really read, read was the Mary Trump book. I don't know if you read that at all. Yeah, no, but I read, I, I read it, and it really. It, it really makes you realize he's just a completely um, uh, narcissistic, scattered intellect. He doesn't really have any plan. Mm-hmm. You know, the overriding thing that that is his seems to be his guiding principle is to run away from any criticism mm-hmm. and at the same, you know, not take any responsibility for anything, and at the same time bully people. You know, you know, bully people into submission. You know, there's there's a kind of punishing instinct in Trump. You know, he's the punisher in chief, and I think there's a lot of um, displaced anger and resentment, and I, I think a lot of white fear. You know, that he speaks to. Um, oh, most definitely. I I agree with you 100. percent I mean, it it reminds me of when I was young, much younger, in my teens. And uh, watching George Wallace at work, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it. People relate to him as Nixon, but I see it more as George Wallace. I see it, you know, like these sort of these white supremacist reactionary politicians of the South that I remember so so clearly. Um, he's, like an, he's like an odd combination of Father Cog- Coughlin and, and Wallace. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, he's got he's got Wallace's kind of racism and, and Coughlin's kind of driving kind of um, relentless um, speech patterns and the, and the sort of scolding, uh, you know, that he... That it's true. It's, it's are, are, you, are you surprised? I mean, I'm surprised by... And I think he's found the Achilles heel in, you know, in what, you know, the system that supposed system of checks and balances that we have the achilles heel has been that if you do have the senate and you have all of these enablers you can just about do whatever you want you can lie your way through anything at that point there needs to be some extraordinarily large-scale changes to representation within the u.s government especially with the senate and how it's organizing two senators per state when California's got 40 million people and Wyoming's got, you know, do they have 2 million? I don't think so. Yeah, you're right. No, and I know that that um, system was there to kind of check the balance of the, of, of the, of the Congress. But right. couple that with um, the Electoral College and how the Electoral College assigned votes based on population bases from the 1900s, if not before. You, you know, California should be deciding every single election based on its population. Um, you know, in terms of the electoral votes, it, it should be getting, but it's not. And so there has to be, no matter what happens in the election, but it will certainly be more possible or will actually be even thought of if, if Biden wins. There has to be some, a, a very clear look at whether our government is representative at, at all anymore. Yeah, even though life probably isn't completely back to normal where you are. I'm sure you've met with a lot of writer friends and a lot of people in the literary community there, or at least talk to them. How are they viewing what's happening in America right now? Uh, it's shocking to them. I mean, even to people who are 
some of them educated in America, but born elsewhere, um, were always skeptics of the American empire, still look upon what's happening with amazement and, and fear, um, because it just seems, it seems out of control. When you read about it and watch it from here, and it's not just sort of inflammatory images from protests, you know, um, you know, it's, it's the scale of the speed of the demolishment of um, previously unchecked uh, or un untested norms that, that Trump is barreling through. Um, and, and the way that with each passing week, there seems to be another test. Well, let's see what happens when I call in, um, not the National Guard, but I use Homeland Security to enforce protests. Right. right. Uh, well, why don't, why don't we just see what happens when I suggest that the election moves? Um, why don't I see what happens when I, you know, pardon someone who, who was who already admitted to several federal felonies um, and was prepared to go to sentencing? And it's just one thing after another, and you can't keep up with it. And I think from here, you don't see his face as much, but the the British media reports on him like he's Idi Amin. You know, it's it's not it's no longer the Mr. President. This 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 grand office. It's you know, they don't, uh, they kind of take a, a pass on some of his more obvious attention grabbing, change the subject moves, which he's quite good at, but are, they're also often also very, very transparent. You know, red, red meat to the base, change the subject while something substantial happens, say, in an executive order or on the level of policy. No, it's interesting because here it's covered inch by inch by inch. Yeah. Word by word by word. Sometimes to get perspective, I'll put the BBC on just to, you know, BBC World News, just to get an idea that there's something else going on in the world. Because otherwise you don't even know about it, you know. Here they're worried, I mean, this, in Britain, they're worried about the, case, the cases, um, what will happen if they fully open up. They're worried about the, the union, you know, Scotland has, has done really well. Nicola Sturgeon has been fantastic through this kind of the opposite of Boris Johnson. She's been a model of stability. And I, I think people are, have a similar level of disgust and frustration with their politics. Just like in America, it feels like, with the exception of the midterm election, when it, you know, all these wonderful new uh, fr freshman Congress people from all over the country were elected and, and the Congress looked a lot more like America. Here, there's a similar frustration that the government doesn't really resemble entirely the nation, and it also doesn't seem to be operating with its best interests in mind all the time. Uh, and because the Brexit has happened, and there's a lot of comparison to what's what kind of measures are being undertaken in Europe to shore up the the economy and to pay for people's uh, livelihoods while they're businesses are closed and you know as you probably noticed in the news a couple two weeks ago that the, the um the eu just passed some huge measures of relief um for their populations and financial stabilizing measures and it's looking more and more like a a, a new deal like a, a european new deal um and nothing on that scale although the the, the money has been spent and doled out to some degree but nothing on that scale has been rolled out in Britain. And that's what's so, um, that's what I think writers are, are thinking about, just that this, 
the imagination that's being applied to this moment and this problem is is um depressingly small yeah no i i, I think I think that's what we share with with Britain right now. I think the same, the very same thing. I think when you look at what's happening on the continent, when you look at what Germ at Germany, Italy, Greece, you know what they've been able to achieve. It's kind of interesting to see uh, how, in some ways, it's brought the EU together in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah, no, the EU has come together, and uh, you know, I think there's been a fifty-year, sixty-year. Uh, attempt within the United States to, through politics and proselytizing, to demonize government as a solution or a safety net for any kind of um, social problems. Uh, it's, and there's been, you know, court cases that have gone to the Supreme Court to undo some of the welfare state. You know, things like the Voter Rights Act have been undone. Um, and, you know, there's been some of that in, in in Europe, but far less, you know, in Britain, for example, there still is the NHS. Right. Every morning I go for a walk on the common, um, which isn't a park, it's a common, which is a different thing. Uh, and there are little flyers out all over the common that say, you know, keep two meters distance, um, be safe with each other and protect our NHS. Mm. And so there's still a, a sort of base level of pride, even though the NHS is slow and it's cumbersome, there's still a lot of pride about what it is and what it provides here that, um, you know, Dominic Cummings and, and all of his shenanigans um, can't undo, you know, it's deeply ingrained in people. Whereas in, I think in America, there's a, a fundamental individualism that has been tapped into, um, you know, through the right that's, that's undone a lot of sense of collectivism. And the Dictionary of the Undoing was an attempt to try to say, what would happen if we tried to rebuild a collective? Like what, what things do we need to re rescue? Talk a little bit about that. Talk about your book, The Dictionary of the Undoing, and well, what you attempted to do with it. I mean, I, I think in our culture, American culture, there's been a virus of selfishness, you know, that has been, that is, that has been there since the very beginning. Um, I think it goes back to the very beginning of the country that for whoever came to the country by choice as a individual or with a family that were doing so for religious freedom, as much as that existed, there were people coming for riches. And in order to do that, they had to take land from people who didn't own it, but were already there. And they had to enslave people um, who didn't necessarily have a choice in becoming a slave. Um, very few of them actually did. And so from the very beginning, there, I think there's been a, a terrible, really mendacious form of American selfishness that depends on taking things from other people. But on the, on the flip side, there's also um, freedom and tolerance in, in the American um, DNA of our documents. And that contradiction, I think, is what makes American culture so vibrant. Um, but it also means that in periods of, uh, of in intense um, politicization, pendulum swings, and we're in a really hard right swing now. If you took the Republican Party and transported them to Europe, they would be, a, you would have to reach into almost Nazi type parties in order to situate them. True. And this has been pointed out by lots and lots of um, mainstream journalists. I'm not a sort of crank here. 
but the result of that is that we have become completely used to ways of speaking that are, I think, kind of absurd, um, that are deeply against uh, the, the fundamental idea of a society, which is better together. That basically, if we live together and, t and share risks uh, about living together, all people end up a little bit better. Um, and the hyper-individual mode is, I don't have to pay for anyone else's problems. I don't have to pay for anyone else's risks. I'm going to make my own way. And my, the point of my of dictionary was to say, well, let's just think about this. From the very beginning of your life, the first moment of your life, you fall out of, <laughs> you, you're pushed out of a, a, a human body, a woman's body, into the hands of someone else. So you're dependent on a, on a, on a woman uh, who's been carrying you for nine months, and then you're dependent on a midwife or a nurse or a doctor or someone there to catch you. And so from the very first moment of your life, you're, interde you're, you're interdependent. And that only, I think, continues as you get older, as you grow up, or you, as you're taught things, as you're fed, as you're cared for or not, as you become an individual, as you go to school, uh, as you leave school and go to work or go to college, all these things, all these decisions are braided with many, many other people there involved in it, hopefully, but not always helping you. And so this book is an attempt to try to go back to very basic things and to look at, you know, what is a body? Uh, it, in, in my definition, it's not a spectacle for pain and suffering, which in our media culture, it sometimes feels like, but a a body is a sacred individual unit of society that is deeply connected to others, you know, and that no body is made for suffering more than others, which seems self-evident, but if you were to turn on the TV, you're probably going to see a lot of particular types of bodies suffering. So the book was an attempt to try to begin at a base level and unspool, like, well, if you define a body that way, what, what is a citizen? And if a citizen is all the people, anyone who decides to claim a place rather than be claimed by it, what, is, what does it mean to act decently? And if a society is defining decency in an enlarged way, how does that affect our interaction with the environment? And if we start to think about the environment um, as something that we all share and have equal value in and that is itself a living thing, what does that mean for fairness? And if you'll notice, I'm working through the alphabet and that's what this this book was it was a kind of 26 letter alphabet of civic life and they were all they were interconnected essays which i think also the purpose of it seemed to me when i read it also to talk about how interconnected we all are in one yeah, way well, every we're breaking down the barriers and showing you know trying to get to the essence of redefining the language we use to describe ourselves to really show how interconnected we are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, it's something that um, is a hard thing to say now because the, uh, we're in such a divided time and um, out of very understandable reasons, um, it's become a tribalized time, you know, and also as, as a white writer and individual, I have to understand that this isn't a time for my voice to be dominant in, in situations like, 
Black Lives Matter protests. You know, I should, my body should be there, but I think my, my voice should be with others, you know, asking for justice, but it, it should not be dominating that debate. It should, I should be listening, you know? And, and so interdependence to me is, is a very fluid and kind of constant balance. Um, I think, that, do you agree that go, what goes with that is respect? And you mentioned it before, decency. Yeah. All of that has to be with interdependence. It's not out of a sense of selfishness that we're interdependent. It's more of a humanistic sense of we're interdependent because we all should care about one another. You put together two anthologies which talk a lot about this, the tales of two Americas, right? And then the tales of two planets. Right. I think you brought writing together to talk about two of these issues that are extremely important that show our interdependence on one another as well. Yeah, I would, Tales of Two Americas has a couple of Floridians at Reach Donica and Patricia Engel. And to me, it was, some, um, it was something of a love project because everywhere in America now is suffering from extreme inequality. It's, it's not just in the cities, it's, it's in rural areas, it's in Florida, it's in Washington State, it's in, you know, Kansas. And so basically the, the goal of that book was to try to say that this is a, a many-sided problem that we all share. And I should say that the subtitle is, it's, um, it's, it's an anthology about income inequality in America. Yeah. The Tales of Two Americas. And the way that the writers uh, tackled it was was really interesting um, because it income inequality was might have been the symptom, but the delivery mechanism could be many things. So Edwidge Dandika has a story in it called Dosas, which is in her new book, Everything Inside, um, which is about a woman who's kind of tricked by her boyfriend into giving money to his family back in Haiti. And he's actually just left with her money. Right. Uh, and and the woman is working as a home health aide, I think. Um, and so migration, you know, makes her slightly vulnerable um, to something that is already vulnerable making, which is love. You know, and in, and income inequality might be the symptom in which that shows up in, on our register, but the narrative is so much more complex. And Patricia Engel has a story um, in that same anthology, which is about just the way that uh, people like her, she's Colombian American, um, but anyone not Cuban American necessarily uh, in South Florida, in her experience, have daily, if not weekly reminders that they're not entirely American. And so she has a, an essay describing the many different microscopic ways that that happens. Um, and that is inequality. Um, and the, the end result of that might be uh, all kinds of things which lead to in, income inequality. Uh, and so the, the book looks at um, just the, the way that America has become a, a place of winners and losers, you know, uh, winners take all. I mean, look, under this pandemic, uh, Jeff Bezos has inc uh, increased his fortune tens of billions of dollars, you know, 
um, I think today there was a big jump in it. That it was so big that it was even noted in the in the national media. And meanwhile, people that are really struggling to get by and are desperate for that extra $600 check from social services have been cut off. And you, you kind of have to ask yourself, like, what, what does it feel like to live in that country? And, you know, these pieces were kind of the answer. Well, not only that, but, but the demonization uh, that, that goes on among politicians for people who are suffering greatly hmm. is just, it's appalling. Of course, your next one, which was The Tale of Two Planets, is about environmental degradation that, that we have and what we could have done and didn't do. Um, and it may even be too late. But I know that you have talked about Nathaniel Rich's book a, a little bit too, which yeah. I happen to love that book. And he talked about a time when we could have done something and we didn't. Yeah, no, that book reads like a crime story. Yeah. You know, and you understand how over a period of 50 years, every kind of uh, moment that would have been a chance to, to make a big investment in switching to greener fuels or to acknowledging the, the damage that was being done to the environment, the very opposite thing happened. And who was driving those decisions and why and where the money was coming from. And he managed to do all that in under 200 pages. Yeah, I know. It's really great. I heard that um, H, uh, is it HBO or Apple TV actually bought it and they're, they're developing it into a, a series. So, John, where did all this come from? I mean, you, are, you were the editor of Granta. You have Freeman's Magazine, which is something I love. Um, you're one of the most generous um, um, uh, champions of writers that I know uh, around. And you have exquisite taste. So where'd you come from? <laughs> How did you develop all this stuff? I can imagine asking the same thing of a bookseller. And there's a huge amount of pleasure you probably get in having a space where people can come in and discover things that, that make them happy, you know, that improve their lives, expand their lives, you know, make them feel less alone if they're um, grieving or if they are heart sick you know, maybe give them something that they can read with their children so they can be with other people. Were you writing in high school? Were you toying with these kinds of things? Were you more of a political kid in high school? What was your high school like? My my parents were social workers, you know, and so they're... they're, You grew up in in Cleveland, I believe, right? Or Cleveland and then uh, a little bit Pennsylvania. And then my high school, I was in, in California. Um, and so, you know, my experience growing up was very, very social, you know, at home, there's a lot of conversations and my parents were activists. So we went to marches for the nuclear freeze movement and we went to women's marches, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, I grew up with an idea that citizenship was an active thing that, uh, you know, my people, like my family, um, we're not just quote unquote lucky, you know, that we were part of a system that needed to be perpetually pushed towards justice, you know, and that sitting on the sidelines wasn't really an option. Uh, And that was, it took me a long time to figure out how to square that with literature, you know, because I I never wanted, 
I knew that to, to use literature entirely as a weapon in that kind of fight would, is, is to take away some of what literature fundamentally is, uh, which is you know, express, an expression of freedom. You know, and if in advance you're told you have to think this way or literature must encourage you to, to want to do this thing, then it's not free, it's, it's, a, it's an instrument. And we live in an extremely instrumental culture. Uh, and, you know, my parents were not artists. My, you know, my mom read quite a bit. Um, my dad did not at all. He read the newspaper in the sports section. Um, but as a result of being around parents who were politically active and a reader who was a mother and having an amazing public high school education in California, you know, it, it, my high school was a, it was a public high school with 2,500 students. Um, and, you know, there were fights every day, you know, huge sports teams. Which part and, of California, in LA or Northern California? It was Sacramento. Sacramento. But, you know, at um, my first year, we started with Gilgamesh. We read from Gilgamesh uh, to the Cavalier Poets my freshman year of high school, you know. By the end of four years, we've read all of Shakespeare's plays, but one or two. And, you know, and this is, we read 19th century French and English novels, Russian novels. And so by the time I got to college, I went to Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. I had the, ex the exact same, if not better education in English literature than some people who went to Exeter and Andover. And here I was from Del Campo High School in California. Oh. So, so did, did, uh, you, did you did you major in English when you were in school? I studied that in politi political science. I wanted to work in government, um, and then I I took an internship um, my sophomore year in D.C. at the General Accounting Office. <laughs> that cured you immediately, probably. Yeah, that it really did. It was <laughs> it was like this. I was working on this study of school buildings that was being done <laughs> to make, figure out if the buildings were ready for the internet. And it was incredibly boring work. It was slow. Uh, it, it was completed years after the authorization of the education bill. So it was actually pointless as well. Right. Um, and I just came, I came out of that experience thinking, this is, uh, wow, this is incredibly useless. <laughs> you know, like they have the, all these people coming in to study problems and then they don't even have time to listen to the answer before the vote is called. So I, I, got, I got the impression of it as a, as a very dysfunctional place. So what was your first literary job after that? Uh, I, I edited the school paper at Swarthmore. Um, and I took a lot of English classes. And then I, I, right out of school, I, I got a job at Bantam Doubleday Dell. As oh, in, you did? Yeah. Um, they came and recruited. Wow. And it, it was a guy with um, corduroy slacks with two-tone <laughs> new buck shoes and an Oxford shirt with a rep tie and pad, you know, elbow padded sure. you know, tweed jacket came and crossed his legs and asked really thoughtful questions about literature. And I thought, wow, this, this is amazing. This is like, this is like J. Crew literature, you know. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I, I got an interview. Um, I took a train into New York, into Times Square. So it's like... 1996, you know, uh, Bantam Doubleday Dell's building was at 44th and Broadway. It was like a missile. Right. right. We walked into the lobby and it was then shared office space with um, 
BMG Music Group. Mm -hmm. And so the lobby had about 40 television screens with various music videos on and people you know, <laughs> gyrating. And I took the train, the, the elevator up and interviewed with three people, um, no, none of whom are now in publishing. Martha Levin, who was running Anchor Books. Yeah, where is that? What, what is Martha doing now? She's, she was lovely. She's great. I think she's probably freelance editing. Yeah. Um, Leslie Schnur, who was running Delacorte. Right, right. Uh, and Susan Camel, who sadly died, died um, I know. last year. And um, Susan's questions were the most amusing. Um, but everyone you else. You had an interview with all three of them. Yeah, because it was the position was one where you would rotate among various departments. Would you, and the editorial side? Yeah. And so I, I basically interviewed around, and then they were going to either hire me or not, and then slot me somewhere. And, so I got the job and I was hired by this editor, uh, Marjorie Brayman, um, whose previous assistant had left at two in the morning. She was so traumatized <laughs> by working for Marjorie. I, I grew to love Marjorie. She also sadly died two, couple, couple of years ago, but um, she was a nightmare. I mean, I, I thought I would sit there and, you know, turn pages of manuscripts and read the New Yorker and say, oh, look at this writer that, you know, I was in there and just, it was it was Doubleware's Prada, like on. Who were some of the Who were some of the authors that you worked with then? This was actually um, Pete Dexter was one of her authors. Oh, I love Pete Dexter. Yeah, Paris, I mean Paris Trout. Yeah, Paris Trout was out about that time, probably. It was she. Marjorie published hardbacks, romance novels, um, and then books that she bought for paperback. So Pete Dexter, um, she bought into Delta Trade paperback. Gotcha. He, he was super nice. Um, there, one of the authors I spoke to most frequently was a, was a romance writer named Virginia Henley, um, who, who sold uh, around 750,000 copies of her books every year. And she was the nicest woman she'd call and she'd send, you know, apples and flowers and, you know, dealing with her was such a treat. And, uh, I, you know, I, I got a really fast education and what paid the bills in publishing. Right. You know, and so as much as I um, had probably would have been happier starting off the bat at FSG, where I wound up in six months, um, I, I, got an, I, I got a real sense of the fact that this was a business, you know, that like pretensions and um, literary feelings or, or even knowledge wasn't, uh, you know, was, wasn't part of the business model. So your so, journey took you from there to FSG. You went there. Yeah, I, I got a job in F, uh, I, I bounced out after six, I, I, I quit. I, was, I had an ulcer, I was so stressed out. <laughs> and I, I went, I snuck into a, the FSG's 50th party at the New York Public Library in 1996. And I ran into this guy um, who actually had also gone to Swarthmore and I told him the sob story. I said, oh, my boss yells at me, I hate it, I'm so scared. And he said, oh, there's a job in Subrights. And so I applied. I got this job and I started there. And um, that was sort of the beginning of my life in publishing. And, and Roger Strauss was still alive, right? He was still alive. He'd, come, he'd walk through with, you know, soup-stained ascots. And I know. I loved him. <laughs> and he was such a passionate person. He really, that. really was. I, I mean, it's was... kind of a glory time for, for even, you know, smaller houses that could still exist. It was great. I mean, and, and I got the impression uh, Marcella Valdez was an intern there. Um, you know, uh, it was just, 
Elizabeth Disagard was there. Elizabeth Sifton was still there editing John Ashbery, everyone. It was just, it was a really massive collection of brains. And guts. So when, when did you move to Granta? When did that happen? Oh, years after. I, I eventually quit all, I, I left publishing, moved to Boston, worked at a bank for a year, thinking I would live the Cheever-esque life. I sort of- Did you start writing poetry then, or were you writing poetry all the time? I wrote a novel. Um, and I, I, it took me a long time to get to writing poetry. Um, I moved back to New York uh, and was freelance writing. And I, I, took, I, I basically spent about 10 years reviewing. Um, and I didn't start were writing you, poetry in my early 30s. somewhere that you were the president of the National Book Critics Circle at one point? Yeah, I mean, about eight years after I moved back to New York, after living in Boston, um, I, didn't re I didn't realize it was like a, it was sort of like one of those mob hits where they take you into a room and you realize there's plastic behind you. <laughs> I, went, I went to lunch with this guy who still, is, still writes. His name's Peter Terzian. He was the book editor or assistant book editor of Newsday. And I don't know how we knew each other, but I, I guess I think I wrote for him. And he said, have you ever thought about joining the National Book Critics Circle? And this was 2002 or three, maybe. I had been to those events and I thought they were amazing. And I'd yeah. seen Kotsia and all kinds of writers like Rebecca Solnit, all these people, you know, reading on stage. And it seemed very august. And I thought, wow, I'm being asked to join this group. Um, and then I realized what an amazing amount of reading it would be. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, and th through them, uh, you know, I got involved in, in about a couple, five years, I was. You so know, you were reviewing for that long. And then the granta position came available. Yeah, I just, you know, I don't know about you, but some really important things have happened in my life by going to parties. That's so, true. I, you know, I just interviewed Edmund White in 2000, and uh, just before 2000, let's see, thir well, 2007, yeah. Um, and I, he was on the jury of the best young American novelist um, list that Granta produces every 10 years. Right. And uh, he said, you should come to this party. And I also, when I moved to New York in 1996, Granta had put out that first issue of the best young American novelist that had Ed Weege and Jonathan Franzen and Laurie Moore and um, Jeff Eugenides and all those people in it. So that book, when I first moved to New York, that issue of Granta was a big deal. Everyone read it and it introduced me to 20 living writers, which was about 18 more than I had read in college. Uh, <laughs> And so when it, uh, it came around again, I was very curious and I went to the party and I met Sigrid Rousing, the owner, through, through Edmund White. And they were looking for a replacement for Ian Jack. And I flew to London and interviewed for the job and didn't get it. I was uh, kind of devastated, but I ended up writing my first book um, instead, Tyranny of Email, um, which I was still uh, you know, in gestational form at that point. And it's, 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 it's even more relevant today than it was then, probably. I, I heard an astonishing thing in the news today. It was, some, it was something about Tim Cook, who gets up at 3.45 a.m., the Apple CEO, because he gets seven to 800 emails a day. Right. I think that's, it's that's not good. That, that, that's, it's not good. <laughs> no, you can't respond to that many people without making any kind of sense. You're absolutely right about that. So then, so then you ultimately did Granta, and then, and then you decided 
to do the Freemans, which I think is fantastic. Why don't you talk a little bit about Freemans and what oh, your yeah. thinking is with that? Well, it's been really nice coming down to the, the book festival every November and having discussions because one thing that led me away from Granta after five years was just this feeling that it was a fundamentally English magazine, a British magazine, and that there were limitations to that space and that I'd pushed as far as I could within that space. And when I moved back to New York, um, I looked around and, there, you know, aside from a public space, there weren't that many general literary magazines that were pitched at a sophisticated, general, curious reader that were, you know, internationalist in, in, their, fun, in their DNA. And I wanted, to, I wanted to make something that didn't have a home, that was basically, you know, had no center. So that I could put writers like Edwidge Dandika next to, you know, Juan Gabriel Vasquez, you know, right. next to Amira Haas, you know, right. next to Aminata Forna, and see what that kind of space looked like when they were in it speaking together. And uh, it's been really fun, and having themes has been um, both a challenge and a nice, uh, you know, the, the upcoming one is about love. Um, which going into the election feels like counter-programming. Um, but I think- It's funny, I just went through the catalog and saw that and I thought, <laughs> how perfect. That was, my, that was my feeling. It was oh, like, just what we need right now is a little bit of that. So uh, it, it, looks like a, it looks like a really great upcoming issue. And then of course you've, you've, you have, um, I'm so glad that you, kind of rediscovered poetry or started it, even though it was a little bit late, but you've written two books of poetry, Maps, and you have a new one that just came out, which I really enjoyed, called The Park. And uh, that that's kind of around a theme a little bit, and it's sort of a little bit about what we were talking about earlier, about public space and what it means and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think... Um in addition to public space being a theoretical part of government and civic life, it's actual space as well, you know, that we, I think, have been lured away from public space into our computers, into our devices. And we still need places to, to be seen and to see. Um, and I think those are fundamental to uh, tolerance of people like and unlike us. And every year I uh, teach in a program in Paris for NYU, um, I go there in January and then for a, a big chunk of the summer and I'm near the Luxembourg Garden, um, which didn't begin as a park or an open space. It was a, Mary de' Medici built um, the, the original palace, which was at, you know, where the Luxembourg Garden is because she was homesick for the Pitti Palace in Florence where she was raised and when she became the, um, the wife of the King of France, you know, she, built this space basically out of longing um, and then eventually it was opened up to the plebs you know and that that was a remarkable democratizing thing and it's been a big um, part of the open space of Paris ever since but it's not perfect and so I went there in uh, 2016 and 17 after I finished maps and I was teaching and you know Trump had become president and I was really despairing um, and I went to the park for solace, which it gave, and, um, you know, fellowship, which was also there too. Um, but I didn't expect to find all the things that 
um, agitated me about life in America, which is that I saw people being kicked out of the park. I saw lots of police with heavy weaponry. I saw migrants trying to hide in the park. Um, and so all those things that were outside the park uh, that were disturbances were also in too. And then on top of it, the park, you know, has a dominion over nature. It sort of tries to control nature. And this is, I think, one of our fundamental problems as a species is our attitude of being separate from nature um, and creating nature as an idea in order to kind of allow ourselves to dominate it. And so the, the book is four seasons on the park, you know, uh, thinking about these things and observing. And uh, in, it, in the middle of it, I, I rope in other parks I've been to um, in Bosnia and, and, and Romania and other places, which um, kind of in memory or in theme touch on some of the ideas that the, the, the book, the park is also thinking on. Can you, can you read a poem from, from the Yeah. Book? Since you're a basketball fan, um, and since I saw something truly amazing, which was that someone had the great idea to spend an hour on NPR asking various um, LA Lakers to talk about a single poem um, uh, by Edward Hirsch. And so I, I, I got to watch uh, Pau Gasol, um, and uh, Kobe Bryant, and this was a while ago, and, um, and, and Shaquille O'Neal close read a poem by Edward Hirsch. Oh and, and it was brilliant. They actually, they had so much um, uh, appreciation for the physical aspect of poetry and, and the sonics. Um, That's a fabulous, uh, I have to, I'll have to find that piece. Oh, great. Uh, and so every summer, um, because I'm in Paris already, uh, I go to Sarajevo uh, because Alexander Hemen kind of wrote me in to help him start a literary festival there. Hmm. And one day um, after the events, which are all in this wonderful, um, big kind of classical auditorium, you, you cross the river and then you're at this bookstore, which is kind of an outdoor party. You would love it. It's, it's totally, a, a, you know. A, what time of year is the festival? I'll have to make sure I go sometime. It's July. Yeah, it's, it's like a total Mitch Kaplan scene. <laughs> People from all over the city, mothers, families, grandparents, writers, people come in from neighboring countries. Oh, and then afterwards, it's, just, it's like a kind of party. And, and um, so one night I, I, I swung by the bookstore and there were three seven-footers or near seven-footers. And so I immediately walked over to them and I said, what, what, what's going on here? And they were ex-Yugoslav basketball players. And then this happened. So this is quite close to the truth. Um, the ex-basketball players. The ex-basketball players want to tell me what it was like playing youth tournaments during the war, how hilariously and inappropriately they were dressed. This guy was shot, they say, pointing to the point guard, now a conductor, a detail that produces roars. He has scars. For a moment, I think he's gonna lift his shirt, the quietest and drollest of the group. Instead, he talks of an all-night drive back to Sarajevo in 1995 and how bandaged and bleeding into his uniform, he told the bus driver, I can't go back. Got out with three friends in Slovenia, 4 a.m. 
We took some sleep, he says, in the park and phoned a friend of a friend who asked how we were three teenagers in a park at dawn. I had this much money in my pocket. We said, fine, we were okay, but two days later, we weren't. We had just 20 euros, our agent stalling. She didn't want us to show up smelly in Italy. So the friend of a friend took us in for a few days. It was nice, showers, hot food, no shelling. But by day three, claps hands. That's it, boys. So it's time for our agent to come through. And miraculously, she does. We're on a train across Europe as if our homes aren't on fire, sitting with travelers reading newspapers, as if our sisters aren't being shot. And for months, the agent, she shopped us around Europe, taking us to tournaments, tryouts. Maybe our price was too high. Four of us, it was fucking hysterical. No one wants a refugee on their team. We were like four monkeys on a rope. That's when they all double over in laughter and form a circle and hug and someone changes the subject. God, that's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. Hey, it's a pleasure. You I know, wish we could be together, you know, in, in, in Miami or, or here or somewhere else. Uh, well, there'll be a time. This, this really, it makes me uh, both happy and sad. Um, I know there'll be a time when we'll, there'll be another side, the other side of this, when we can all get together again. And, um, um, you know, I could talk to you for all day. <laughs> so yeah. no, it's, it's, I'm so grateful for what you made down there in that festival and all the people you bring in. It's it, to me, it's that kind of festival is just an ideal form of the enlarged and enriched public space that I crave, you know, and I hope when we come out of the COVID-19 crisis that we, we don't try to forget what we, what we went through. You know, there's so much that we've learned. And I, I, I imagine that festivals like yours, there will be a lot of discussions about, you know, not not simply paving over what what we witnessed, but trying to respect it. You know, and 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 learn from it. And whenever I go to the Miami Book Fair, I feel that. You know, I see people talking very seriously about ideas and and American history and culture and and it's in Spanish and other languages. And I I'm just I'm very happy to be part of a community where that is a big part of our year. Well, thank you for the role that you play in our community, and I thank you for it. And uh, please give my love to Nicole, and I hope you enjoy your time in London. And um, and thanks for being on the Literary Life. Yes, it's a pleasure. It's a real, real pleasure. <laughs>